Sunday in Advent. It's been an adventurous day with the snow and the furnace issue. Uh, but it's the first Sunday of our series based on the book, The Journey, uh, by Pastor Adam Hamilton. Now, I'm hoping, I'm hoping if you're able, you'll join us Wednesday night uh, here at 6 o'clock for the book um, study, which includes a DVD presentation. Uh, it's actually on site in, in uh, the Holy Land. So uh, some of what he talks about will be historical, geographical information, and you'll get to see firsthand as he's at some of the places um, that is mentioned in the book and in, actually in our story. But preaching during Advent is, is sometimes a difficult proposition because it's a story we know. It's not, it's not a story that we're unfamiliar with. It's not you're finding some deep passage in the Bible that people tend to overlook. I mean, it's a story that we hear. Um, it's the same cast of characters, and I, I think that we know it by heart, and, and sometimes we know we're too familiar with it. But I also think that there's something to be learned from the Christmas story, and I think that sometimes we maybe forget some parts of it. So it's kind of nice, you know, we talk about it all year long, but I think there are parts of it that it's nice to have that yearly reminder of what exactly happened on that first Christmas. Um, as a matter of fact, Adam actually addresses four questions in his book, um, and I would encourage us to apply them to our Advent journey. He asks, what actually happened leading up to and including the first Christmas? He asks, what does the story teach us about the character of God? What does it tell us about the child whose birth we celebrate? And what does the story mean for our lives today? So, um... Way back in 1985, my fellow Hoosier, John, and as he was known back then, Cougar, Mellencamp, sang these words, Well, I was born in a small town, and I live in a small town, probably die in a small town, oh, those small communities, if you remember that song. And I remember how popular this was. I mean, it was a fellow Hoosier making it big. Uh, and for those of us around Indiana, where I was, where I grew up, um, in 1985, I was 13. Um, some of you are like, okay, I was okay, uh, but in 1985, I was 13. So you know, it kind of resonated Jack and Diane, you know, the whole a lot of his stuff. Um, John John Mellencamp was actually from Seymour, Indiana. It's a little town um, near Bloomington. But I didn't even realize this, but in the 1980s, the population of Seymour was around 15,000 people. Uh, for me, I grew up in a town of about 2,000. Um, I think right now it's around 1,700 people. So for me, 15,000 is not a small town, but I guess for John Cougar Mellencamp it was. But, but like many of you, I know what it's like to grow up in a small rural area, a small town. So did Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was born in the small town of Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth sits in northern Palestine. It's around 65 miles from Jerusalem. Um, that's, a straight, that's, that's the crow flies, so it would be 65 miles. With, with roads, it would be a little further. Uh, but in Mary's day, Nazareth was small. It was like really small. It was around um, probably a few hundred people. Estimates are between two to 500 people. Um, it was it was so small it didn't even have a stoplight. That's a dad joke, by the way. <laughs> Terrible joke. Apparently the gas isn't raising up here yet, Mary. <laughs> um, but it, no, I'm just kidding. But it, it was a small town. It was today. Nazareth is actually around seventy-seven thousand people. So that's that's quite the growth. Um, and it does have stoplights because during my time um, in Nazareth. Um, I remember when I was in college, I got to go to the Holy Lands, and we were in Nazareth, 
And as I remember, our bus driver actually had a car accident in Nazareth at a stoplight. Uh, and then they got out, yelled at each other, and then just sort of parted and went their own ways. I, I, I remember that incident. We're like, what just happened? They're like, oh, I think we hit a car. It <laughs> was great. Uh, what a trip. Anyway, um, Nazareth is, is really known. It had a spring. That's why the town was built there. Um, it had a natural spring. And as we'll see in our, our study on Wednesday, the spring is actually still there. But because of the city being built up uh, over the years... It now sits below a church, and, and Adam will show that in the video. He'll go down below the church to show the spring. But he brings it up because it, it makes you wonder if this is where Jesus is, a lot of his talk about living water, because he grew up in this town that had a natural spring. Uh, and if you've grown up anywhere in, in the middle of the desert, you know, it's important that, that it's, you know, water is life. Um, I mean, it doesn't speak as much to us today, the idea of living water and, and struggling to get water. But a few months ago, um, those of you that were in the mountaintop chatter that live up in mountaintop, you'll remember that there was a water issue uh, with the water in mountaintop. And everybody was, was, for about two or three days, everybody was sort of freaking out because um, they had brown water, the water was unusable, and then it became a big issue. So that kind of spoke to them, I would think. Um, but it would definitely resonate with people that live in rural areas that live in places where water isn't of, of easy to get to. So uh, the name Nazareth actually comes from the word Netzer. Uh, which means an offshoot or a branch. And this is important because um, it reminds me of the picture that's circulating. You'll see these pictures on the internet of a tree that had fallen over or of a stump that was, you know, a tree was cut down and you see a tree growing out of a stump. Some of you have probably seen those pictures. This terminology was actually used by the prophets in talking about Israel having been cut down, but that it would sprout once again. We actually read in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 3, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Most likely they chose the name because at that time, um, you know, Israel had gone through so much and it was the hope that Israel would sort of rise again. Uh, so they, they probably, they named it this out of that hope that Israel would, you know, make a comeback. And, you know, little did they know that the, from their little city that the root of Jesse would come and that Jesus would be born or would come from that city. But what we have to ask is why Nazareth? Like, why would God choose this little, out of, in the middle of nowhere town of, of 400 or however many people? And Mary notwithstanding, like, why would he, he it's such an inconsequential place. In some history recounts, it's not even mentioned because the town was so small. And even someone asked Jesus, of Jesus later, like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It kind of reminds me of my Hoosier roots again. And Larry Bird, who was known as the hick from French Lick. You know, can anything come out of French Lick? Or can anything come, good come out of Cambridge City? Can anything good come out of Slocum or, or New Angola or, or Dorrance? Or, you know, can anything good come out of such a small, inconsequential place. But we read in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 27 through 29, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. We see time and time again in Scripture that God continually 
chooses to use the nobodies. Because when God uses a nobody, God's the one that's glorified. It means a whole lot less if, if God would use somebody who has resources and power and influence. I mean, they may be able to make this big difference, but it doesn't reflect on God as much as it reflects on them and their power and their influence and the things they already have. And that's why God chose Nazareth. And that's why God chose Mary and why God still chooses, I guess you would say, the little guy. For Mary, as were most young girls in her day, she was most likely poor and uneducated. Uh, many in Nazareth actually were. There wasn't much to be found in Nazareth. I mean, a city of, of 400 people kind of in the middle of nowhere. Uh, most of the people would probably travel about an hour away to the Roman city of Sepphoris for work. It was kind of a resort town. Um, there were a lot of villas and nice places. They would probably work as servants and, and helping take care of them there. Um, probably in Nazareth, the only work was probably just being a merchant, you know, selling something to your own people. It wasn't exactly a, a travel destination. There's actually thinks, there's thoughts that some in Nazareth probably actually lived in caves. Now, this is something, honestly, I never really considered. Um, that there were probably people, that, because of the mountains around there, there were probably some that lived in caves because it was cheap housing. Uh, it was secure, um, a little cold and, and, and wet, and, and, but, but it, was a safe, it was safe housing and it was cheap. So there's thought that many of Nazareth probably lived in the caves. That there's even some theories that maybe Mary lived in a cave because she was so poor, but they haven't really proven that. Um, but we do know that Mary was probably around 13 when the angel appeared to her. And you're like, 13? Holy cow. That's how old I was when John Mellencamp wrote his song. But, uh, <laughs> but I was, you know, he was, she was 13. When the angel appeared to her. And what it was is girls were betrothed and married young um, after their first period. Because uh, you have to remember the life expectancy was less than 35 years old. A few of you have doubled that. <coughs> that alone. <laughs> but 35 was the average life expectancy was less than 35. So that's why they married young. It was also expected that, that once you had a child that you would just keep having children almost year after year, that you would have children. It, it, was, it, was, all, it was a dangerous affair. I mean, there was not, the life expectancy was low and childbirth was a lot different than it is these days. There were a lot of risks involved. I mean, there still is, but the medics, medical was a lot different then. So girls were betrothed and married young. Um, there would have been a year-long engagement followed by a ceremony and then the consummation of the marriage. So... Um, it's kind of crazy when we think about it, but that's sort of well, how life was back then. So today we come to our scripture. Um, I wanted to give you a little bit of background, a little bit of history, because I think it's important to sort of realize that everything we look at and think of moving forward with Mary is think that, that all of this was said and done by a 13-year-old girl. So think about that. So we read in verse 28 of Luke 1. That the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now, now scripture doesn't tell us that Mary was scared and frightened because of the angel. So most likely the angel appeared to her in human form. Um, if you ever go into Revelations and read some of the angel descriptions, your angel and your tree would look a whole lot different than it actually does today. Um, but it's most likely Gabriel appeared in human form. 
Because it wasn't his appearance that, that made her nervous. It was his introduction. This is how the message puts the words of what he said. Or what Mary's reaction was. Said she was thoroughly shaken. Wondering what was behind a greeting like that. Those of you that had children or grandchildren. And they walk up to you and say. Do you know how much I love you? Or who's the best mom ever? And you're like, alright, what do you want? So Mary's like, what's behind a greeting like this? Come on, let's go. Let's, let me have it. What's the rest of it? Some translations actually use, when, when he greets her, the phrase full of grace to describe Mary. Um, if you've ever attended Catholic Mass, you've heard that. If you grew up in the Catholic Church, you've heard that Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace. And that's how they use it to describe Mary. And it comes from the Greek word kakoratomain, which means one who is filled with grace. And so that's how he greets her, Mary, full of grace. So can you imagine? But grace is actually a word I think that we use too much. It's, it means goodness that we don't deserve, kindness, salvation, forgiveness, blessing. It means all of these things when they're a pure gift. It's not grace if somebody's going to give you grace and then remind you of the mistake or remind you that they gave you grace. Remember that time I forgave you? Remember that time I gave you grace? It's not grace if somebody gives it to you hoping to get something in return. It's when grace is a pure gift. As Adam puts it in the book, grace has the power to change lives. We hear stories about this, how somebody gives somebody grace and forgiveness and how it changes their outlook on life. For us, this grace is a sign of God's character. Christmas is grace. It's a sign of God's character in the person of Jesus. It's, a, it's God's kindness towards us in human form. Sensing Mary's concern, the message goes on to say, but the angel assured her, Mary The truth of the matter is, Mary had everything to fear. Fear of judgment and ostracization, becoming pregnant out of wedlock, fear of what Joseph could have done to her in the eyes of the law, including stoning, fear of being alone if Joseph chose to break off the engagement, fear of death and childbirth, fear of raising God's child. Like, what if you messed him up? <laughs> Mary had everything to fear. Yet this was her response. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. It's obvious that Mary's faith was greater than her fear. This actually makes me wonder, how often do we let our fears hold us back? I mean, we all have them. We have those things that we carry with us. The things that, that maybe wake us up at night, those things that we're sitting there and we realize we drifted off, that we're worrying about, the things that kind of make our heart beat, that, that but makes our heart beat in our throat. But I think maybe a better question is how often do we let our fears hold us back from following God's will for us? In the Advent story, God assembled a cast of unlikely characters, and we'll hear more about them in the coming weeks. And it began with Mary. And it shows us that God can use anyone to do his will. 
See, God had a plan for them, and God has a plan for us as well. As a matter of fact, I'd say that our plan is a continuation of what was begun on that first Christmas. But in order for us to fulfill this plan, we have to be like Mary, 13-year-old Mary. And we have to allow our faith to be bigger than our fear. And like Mary, we have to be willing to say yes to God. Let us pray. To God, we just thank you for Mary. We thank you for the faith that she had, even as a young girl. We ask that you would help us to have a little bit of that faith. And that our faith would be bigger than our fear. And that we allow you to use us to do your will. We ask this in Jesus' name.